Oh, let's get it. Monday, November 1st, 2021. Born the Battle, brought to you by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I'm your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. However you listen to this podcast, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, the player inside the blog on blogs.va.gov. Hope you're having a good week outside of podcast land. Whether it was getting the kids some candy or attending a, I don't know, fun event get together. Hope you got out for Halloween festivities last weekend. First week in November, uh, maybe it was maybe it's because of the warmer weather we're ha- we've been having here in Virginia. But man, fall is flying by. Felt like yesterday I was just sweating my butt off in August. Couple new ratings, however, no new reviews this week. I do appreciate the ratings, however. And if you haven't yet, please consider writing a review for Born the Battle on Apple Podcasts. It does work. It does help us climb higher in the algorithms. You know, that way when they go on Apple Podcasts and they get the suggested podcast, giving us a review does get us up there. It does give more veterans a better opportunity to discover Born the Battle on their podcast player so they can listen to the testimonies of their fellow veterans and how they overcame their own challenges, listen to our benefits breakdown episodes, and hear what's in our news releases. It's also the best way for me to communicate with you. You lead a review. I read it here on the show. You get some feedback. Everything's good to go. Got a couple news releases this week I think that you'll be interested in. First one says for immediate release. The Department of Veterans Affairs is now offering Moderna and Johnson & Johnson, a.k.a. the Janssen COVID-19 vaccine booster shots under emergency use authorization, expanding on last month's authorization of the Pfizer booster. This decision follows the FDA's authorization and CDC's and prevention's recommendation for a booster dose using the Moderna or J&J vaccines. VA will follow CDC guidance in offering the COVID-19 booster shots by this list right here for individuals who completed a Pfizer or Moderna COVID-19 vaccine series. The following groups are eligible for a booster shot at least six months after their second dose. I'm just going to leave the, and the list I think is an order of precedence ages 65 years and older ages 18 and over who live in long-term care settings ages 18 and over who have underlying medical conditions and ages 18 and over who work or live in high risk settings. People 18 years and older are also eligible to receive a COVID-19 booster shot at least two months after their initial J&J vaccine. Eligible individuals may choose which vaccine they receive as a booster dose. Some people may have a preference for the vaccine type that they originally received and others may prefer to get a different booster. According to the CDC and their recommendation, they now allow for this type of mix and match dosing for their booster shots. CDC also advises that people can get both the COVID-19 vaccine and flu vaccine at the same time. Veterans receiving care at VA who wish to get a booster shot can get both shots together during the same visit. If you would like additional information, you can also visit the VA COVID-19 vaccines webpage or visit your local facilities website on va.gov or contact their care team. You can also visit VA's COVID question page regarding the COVID-19 vaccine. Just go to va.gov, go to the search bar, Type in COVID questions in the search bar, and the questions page will be the first link that is recommended to you. Okay, and the next one says, for immediate release, the Department of Veterans Affairs has extended the presumptive period to December 31st, 
2026 for qualifying chronic disabilities rated 10% or more resulting from undiagnosed illness in Persian Gulf War veterans to ensure benefits established by Congress are fairly administered. The reasoning, according to the VA, is that, and here comes the government legally speak, limiting entitlements to benefits due to the expiration of the presumptive period would be premature given that current studies remain inconclusive as to the cause and time of onset of illnesses suffered by Persian Gulf War veterans. So they are going to extend the deadline. VA presumes certain medically unexplained illnesses are related to Persian Gulf War service without regard to cause, including chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, functional gastrointestinal disorders. Also included are undiagnosed illnesses with symptoms that may include but are not limited to abnormal weight loss, cardiovascular disease, muscle and joint pain, headache, menstrual disorders, neurological and psychological problems, skin conditions, respiratory disorders, and sleep disturbances. Persian Gulf War veterans who are experiencing any of these symptoms listed above and other unexplained medical issues are encouraged to file a claim. Learn more at www.benefits.va.gov forward slash persona forward slash veteran hyphen Gulf War dot ASP. All right, we got a great guest for you this week to kick off this first day of Native American Heritage Month. He is an Air Force veteran a native of the Ottawa tribe, and he's also an internationally acclaimed speaker who has spoken to Fortune 500 companies, think Disney, Costco, IBM, Subaru, etc., and for federal agencies like NASA about reclaiming what he calls is the warrior spirit. He's written a couple of best-selling books about it, and he's also had a PBS special about discovering your warrior spirit. And now he's here on Born the Battle to talk to you about it. He is Air Force veteran DJ Eagle Bear Vanis. Enjoy. DJ Eagle Bear, excuse me, Eagle Bear, Eagle Bear. You can tell us See mind. where your mind is. See where my yeah. mind is this morning. Vanis. Uh, <laughs> Vanis, uh, right? Yep. I get that. Okay. Uh, Eagle Bear, I always like hearing these stories of where you get your name. Um, where did you get the name Eagle Bear? I got the name from, it's actually Mato Wambli in Lakota. And I got it my third year of the Sundance ceremony uh, that I'm a veteran of. And we do a, a, a traditional naming ceremony. The elders pray over you and then they take you into the lodge and then they give you your name. And my name, Eagle Bear, is what it translates to. Um, Eagle was for the, the creature that flies the highest, the closest to the creator, that has vision, that has. Um, you know, kind of a, a, a leadership component to it. And then bear is a representative of wisdom and strength. And so when I got the name, I felt the gravity of it. You know, it's big shoes to fill. Sure. I've been trying to honor that name and the work that I do and have been doing for two and a half decades now. Got it. So, so um, it's, it's Lakota. Did you get it from Lakota? Yeah. Yeah. The, the Lakota word is Matowambli. Um, but the Sundance I, I'm a veteran of is a Lakota Sundance. So my spiritual leader, my medicine man was Lakota, CeeLo gotcha. Blackrow. Gotcha. And so I followed in his, you know, he, he was my mentor. Gotcha. And We've so, had a couple of Lakotas uh, on, on Born the Battle. If you look in our archives, if you listen to this, it's, there's some, there's some really good ones in there. Yeah. Um, and I'm actually Ottawa Indian from Michigan. 
Yeah, I saw that. I was going to yeah. ask you about that. First time I've ever met anybody from Ottawa tribe. Uh, I know yeah. Ottawa is the capital of Ontario. They took uh, their I, name I knew, from us. Yeah, yeah. of course. I, I, I knew it was a native word, but not a, <laughs> yeah. not a tribe, but it's in Michigan. It's in Michigan and Canada. We're on both sides of the border. And actually, Ottawa is a misnomer. We got misnamed. I could tell you, share that story with you, too. It was Absolutely. a miscommunication. Um, the way that we got our name, we had a, a vibrant trade network set up. Uh, Ottawa's are related to Ojibwe's and Potawatomi's. So Ojibwe's are the big tribe that most people have heard of them before. Okay. Um, but together, we were known as the Three Keepers of the Fire. So we were allies, we intermarried, we protected each other, we were trade partners. And in the early 1600s, our, my tribe, the Ottawa's had established this vibrant, industrious trade network on all the rivers and all the lakes in Michigan and Canada. And, and with all the tribes in the area and all the European nations that had made it over. And in the early 1600s, the French came and discovered us. Yeah. You know, of course, a joke. We were there already. They ran into us. They, <laughs> oh, were, impressed yeah. they were impressed at what they saw. And they were a little bit jealous. You know, okay. typical French. I always picture how this went down. You know, big floppy hat, peacock feathers, white tights, buckle <laughs> shoes. I don't know that they were wearing that, but that's the movie I play in my mind. Okay. Have you seen, came, a quick yeah. caveat, have you seen that Netflix show with Jason Momoa in it talking about the fur trades? Yes. Frontier. Yes. Frontier. Outstanding series. So I'm picturing that in my mind when you're talking about this. Yeah. Great series. I love that show. Um, But they came up to our leaders and asked a simple question. They, you know, the French were impressed, but they were a little bit jealous, you know, typical French. I always picture, you know, how this interaction happened. They came to our our leaders and they said, uh, you know, excuse me, monsieur, who are you? Well, we didn't speak French. They didn't speak our language. So we, we thought they were asking us, what are you doing? So we answered in our language, we said, Odawa, which in our language means to trade. And they go, Sacre Blue, you'll be Odawa. And they wrote it down, the ink dried, and we're like, no. And we've been known for that ever since, you know. And I think what a goofy way to get named. Sure. Um, we actually call ourselves Anishinaabe, which means the people. Okay. But we've been known as Ottawa's ever since. My, uh, I can already tell my transcriptionists are going to have a great time in this episode. Uh, I'm going to need some. I'm going to need some. Uh, send me the spelling on some of this when we get a when you get a chance. Uh, gotcha. Can um, do. So, when did you know that military service was going to be the next step in your life? Uh, I grew up as a military brat. My dad was Air Force. Uh, he was an enlisted man for 21 and a half years, and I didn't grow up in Michigan. I was born there. My family's from there, but I was born when my dad was in basic training at Lackland Air Force Base. Okay. And so I grew up in enlisted housing on bases, at, you know, North Dakota, South Dakota, Biloxi, Mississippi. And so growing up near the end of a runway, watching planes fly in and out, you know, um, I was always fascinated. I was always drawn and watching my dad come home every day in uniform and doing the work that he did and, and you know, doing the mission that he did. He was part of SAC, uh, Strategic Air Command. Okay. So I remember the patch even as a kid uh, because they handled our nukes and, yeah. you know, it was an iron gauntlet with lightning coming out of it. And I was, you know, so I was, I was hooked early and I was always fascinated by aviation. And that was the path that kind of looked like a natural fit for me. You're like my wife, very, it, she was a military brat as well. A uh, very, very transient. Um, not, did you, did you ever feel disconnected from the Ottawa tribe when you were in as a military brat? Uh, yes and no. Um, I always knew who I, who I was, where I was from. My grandma 
taught our traditional language back home in Michigan. Oh, wow. So I grew up understanding, you know, where I came from and, and having a good sense of that. But not growing up in my home community, there was a disconnect. Yeah. You know, home was where the Air Force sent us. Yeah. And so there was always that that kind of gap. But we would go home pretty often, you know, a couple times okay. a year. So you still and, had a connection uh, there. That's still that's had good. a connection. Yeah. Um, so when when and where did you serve? When did you decide, OK, this is I'm going in? Um, I applied to the U.S. Air Force Academy. And so that was one of the eight colleges that I applied to. It was my number one pick. I uh, didn't know if I would get it. Uh, I was already committed to I was going to go to University of Michigan and be a Wolverine on an Air Force ROTC scholarship. And then I get a call from Senator Trent Lott and he called my house when I was home for lunch. And my dad picked up the phone and got the call. And it was a really surreal experience. But I got offered the appointment right then. I accepted right then. Uh, that was my number one pick. So I went to the Air Force Academy and graduated from there, second lieutenant, and got stationed. I stayed back a year and recruited for the academy. I could share that story you know, as we go, um, how impactful that was. And then I okay. got into uh, systems acquisition. So I worked in the space warfare component of the Air Force. So we built and launched satellites, okay. um, which was a blast. Da -da -da. Oh, nice <laughs> little pun. But I spent, I spent uh, four years at Los Angeles, Air, Los Angeles Air Force Base. And yes, there is one. Doesn't have a runway. Uh, we work with all the civilian contractors in the area like JPL, Aerojet, Aerospace, Hughes Aircraft to build our components. And um, spent several months out in the outback of Australia rebuilding a, one of our satellite uh, stations. Interesting. And yeah, it was really cool. And then I ended up going back to the Air Force Academy and became the youngest ever uh, chief of minority enrollment at the academy. Okay. And so I was passionate about that mission. Um, that was my last uh, assignment. And I separated in 2002 as a captain after doing that role for four years. Okay. I didn't know we um, made satellites out in Australia or assembled satellites on Australia. Yeah. It's our satellite readout station uh, for, you know, we have many over the, over the you know planet, but that one we were re, um, refurbishing the hardware and software, so it was a big project, and and that was one of the uh, stations that we connected with for our, our satellite network. Super interesting. Um, best memory of your service? What would you say it, it was? Oh my gosh, I have so many. You had to pick I mean, one, the, right? the biggest, the friendships, the friendships I got. I mean, brothers and sisters to this day. Yeah. Um, hands down. It's, it's one of the things that, you know, when I hung up the uniform, you know, there, there are certain aspects, of course, of the military that, you know, we don't necessarily miss, but that one, you know, I, I took with me even as I left and it was, uh, it's precious to me even, even to this day. Very good. Absolutely. Um, the converse of that biggest challenge. Biggest challenge was, uh, learning responsibility quick, you know, right out of the gate. And, yeah. you know, being a leader uh, at 21, 22 years old, you know, you get a lot of responsibility pretty quickly, um, but you grow your wings pretty quickly, too, uh, which is great. And it's not always easy. It's not always pleasant. <laughs> you learn a lot of you know things by doing them wrong. Sure. Uh, that's how you learn. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. But that was that was one of the biggest challenges is, you know, when you're in the military, it's not just about what you do. It's about your team and, yeah. and trying to be, you know, aware of you know, what they're doing, but also their growth and development too. So 
That was, that was always a challenge. It never, school was never out, you know, for that responsibility. hundred percent. Um, who helped you in that, in that journey, in the leadership journey, uh, while you were in, give me either, I guess you can get, you can give me either a mentor or a best friend. Um, my first boss, uh, major Donnell Smith, he was an F-15 pilot. Oh, wow. Phenomenal guy. I was a 21 year old Academy grad and as much leadership training as we get during the Academy, it really doesn't mean much until you're out there doing it. So I was now the rubber was meeting the road and he was my, my first boss. And I was, like I said, I recruited for the Academy for a year because I, I had a, I wanted to increase diversity. You know, we had 4,400 people there and eight of us were native. And I went up to the office to talk about that. And they basically said, well, why don't you put your money where your mouth is? Uh, do you want to work for us for a year? And they worked me like a dog. I mean, I was on the road for three and a half weeks every month for a year. And I loved it. But my, but my boss, Major Smith, you know, I remember one day I went in and it was, you know, pretty at, at the very beginning of the assignment. And I was planning a trip, a recruiting trip, a yeah. lot of details, a lot of moving parts, a lot of coordination. And I was talking to him and I said, well, you know, what should I do about this, this, this? And I remember he sat back in his chair and put his arms behind his head and just had a big smile. He had a million dollar smile. He said, I don't know, Lieutenant Vanis, what do you think you should do? <laughs> it was like one of those moments of empowerment that I, I needed in that moment. I needed to hear. It's like, this is your decision to make. You set up the plan, you execute. And it was, it was a freeing moment for me. It almost like I could almost feel the detachment from the, the constraints that I had felt, you know, being at the Academy for four years. It was like, yeah, I get to make the decision. I'm, I'm the guy now. And yeah. so it was, it was great having a boss like that, that believed in me uh, the way that he did. So giving you enough rope to, I mean, proverbially hang yourself, but giving you enough rope to yeah. actually empower yourself to not only hang yourself, but, but actually lead and actually do something instead of just being micromanaged the entire time. Absolutely. Yeah. And he expected that of us because he had all second lieutenants, you know, there were 10 of us in the team and he expected, you know, and he was an Academy grad too. And he was like, he knew it's like, this is your time to start spreading your wings and, you know, operating under your own power. So it was, it was a great experience. Very good. Um, so you got out in 2002. Why, why did you decide to get out then? Yeah. Which is a weird time to get out. Yeah, halfway through a 20 year career and everybody halfway thought I was, through. Yeah, halfway through and everybody thought I was a little bit nuts, uh, including my commander at the time, pulled me aside and was like, everything okay? And what had happened was I found what I feel I was called to do. And that's the only reason why I left the military. I found something I love to do more. And it was doing the work that I do now and uh, going out as a as a speaker as an author, you know, sharing these messages that I share on, you know, showing people and organizations how to use our traditional warrior spirit principles in action to get better results in what they do. Um, I found that I started, you know, kind of doing, doing it on the side when I was in the military and I started doing it more and more until it kind of created a life of its own. And I got to this decision point where I had to make a choice. Um, cause I was doing two full-time jobs. It felt like for a little while and it about broke me in half. I mean, I, that, that was a whole story in and of itself. Got the shingles. I was, I was like, I was kind of a mess, Jeez. but it, it helped me really clarify that this was the time to go off and do something else. I think everyone kind of knows when it's time. Yeah. It's just having the courage to do it sometimes. 
Um, yeah. And it was a gut check moment and it took a lot because I, I was scared to death. I'll be honest with you. That was, you know, I grew yeah. up in the military. I knew the structure, the stability there yeah. and to get out and, and do a blue sky project where there was no, you know, there was nothing except what I created <laughs> was, was a kind of a terrifying prospect. Um, but, but, you know, fear can focus your, your, you know, really give you focus and clarity. Oh, and 100%. it did for me. Uh, I, same here. I got it 11 years. So, uh, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. You're one um, of the crazy ones, Tanner. <laughs> yeah. That's why I like uh, you. Same here. Um, so you got out in 2002. What was it like getting out in 2002? A lot of times I hear people getting out in the seventies. A lot of times I hear people getting out in like a real post nine 11, like 2007 to 15, Right. Uh, 2002 is kind of a unique, unique time. I don't know if we were getting the influx of veterans that we got, we were getting at the time. Uh, I don't know if the support was there for you yourself getting out in 2002. What was that like? It was weird because actually I was scheduled to get out in 2001, mm. actually specifically October of 2001. Oh geez. And guess what happened in September? So everybody got put on stop loss and, and to be honest, nobody really wanted to get out then anyway. I mean, that was yeah. people were actually coming back in then. And so, but the problem was I had ramped up my tempo on doing my side hustle, you know, speaking and, and developing content and building a network. I had developed the momentum there where like it started, I, I was burning up all my leave and I was ready to make that big leap. And then when that happened, it was like I leapt, but I was still connected. Mm -hmm. So I struggled and flailed for, you know, I, I wasn't able to get out until July of 2002. And so in that time, that's where I said, I got the shingles. I was struggling to do two, two jobs at once. It was, it was really rough, but that, that's why the, the timing was so, it was a little bit weird. Sure. Sure. So there was a struggle to stay when everything happened. Yeah. Because I didn't know what the future was, you know, yeah. we didn't know anything. We didn't know yeah. what was going to happen, who was going to be involved. Um, I even applied, uh, when I, uh, was getting out, I was applying to the air marshals. Wow. Like I wanted to still be, you know, a contributor. Fight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So gotcha. it was, a, yeah, it was a real, it was a real uh, dynamic and kind of turbulent time, but back and um, forth. Yeah. yeah. So you did eventually make that transition. You did get out, um, you know, to, to what you're doing today. Uh, you're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, I see you have done doing my research. I see you doing, uh, talks about fulfilling and successful lives. And you're talking to like Disney, NASA, Costco, uh, yeah. speaking at the white house. Yeah. Um, and That's I say cool. all bit that because, you know, I get pitches from other professional speakers at the beginning of their journey. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I don't care about those veterans, but for me, this is, that's not what born the battle is about. Um, it's not what this podcast is about. I, I want veterans on here that can say, this was not only my military experience or battle that I bore, but I've borne the battle on my post-military journey to some degree. And maybe you're not done with that journey. Of course not. Right. None of us are. Yeah. Um, and this is how I've reached the level to this point. So others at the beginning of the journey can, can hear that this. So yeah. for those veterans, how did you, how did it start for you? It sounds like it started while you were still in the military and it how did, did it, how did it get to the point that it is now? I got, there are so many positive things I got out of my military experience that helped me literally every day in the business that I'm in. 
Um, it has helped me build a business. It helped me create my first book, my second book. It's helping me every day that I'm working right now on my third book. I'm under contract with Penguin Random House, which is like a phenomenal, like Eat that's it. a dream come true. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. a, you know, top of the pyramid there. So I'm working on that third book. But all that I learned in the military, I'm leveraging and have been ever since the day I got out. And so that's been a powerful testament to, you know, I'm so grateful for the experience. Um, you know, what I learned about myself, what I learned about self-discipline, about organization skills, about communication, um, making hard calls, uh, dealing with fear. There are so many different aspects that, that led me to this point. Um, and like I said, I, I've been using it since the very beginning. I mean, I started this business and it's still kind of one of those pinch me moments. I started this business with a Kinko's business card and a sky pager, literally, <laughs> you know, literally those were my two assets that I had. And then, and then myself, uh, business and all the things. yeah, that's it. Business card two, and, a, and a pager. Two, two things, <laughs> but we tend to discount all the stuff that we bring to the table. You know, we are, a uh, uh, a walking one man, one woman army, you know, in that moment, um, even though I'm Air Force, I'll use that analogy. Uh, but, you know, I'm just saying we discount our talent, ability, experience, education, yeah. life lessons, all the conversations we've had, the trainings we've been through. I mean, we tend to discount that. We, we are a, an amazing fountain of good stuff. And the military helped me leverage mine. And so that's why I've always been grateful for that experience because it really got me to see things in myself that I didn't know were there and got me to use things in myself that I hadn't been able to use or leverage before. So it was very empowering. And it sounds I, like you and, never forgot it. And I'm still growing it. Yeah. You know, going everything from going through basic training, going through jump school, going through survival training at Siri. You know, you go through these moments and you come out on the other end and you're like, man, that was, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. You know, but it, it sets you up. Yeah. But it sets you up for the next one and yeah. the next one and the next yeah. one. And that's the thing that we tend to forget about is it's not just getting through the things that we get through, it's growing through them. And then, and then even more importantly, remembering what it took to get through that moment um, to be able to carry it forward. So, you know, we've had a lot of authors come on this podcast, uh, and again, they're they're in our archives, from from Dale Dye to again uh, G. Michael Hoff and, and others. Some fiction, some nonfiction. Uh, what inspires you to write? Uh, just being able to share my message with a bigger group. You know, I can only be in one place at one time. I, I learned that early on, um, it, where you know things start getting busy, and then you know that's how my first book came about. Is people kept asking, "Do you have this stuff written down anywhere?" Mm. And I'd always wanted to be a writer, um, even back in, you know, when I was a, a kid, you know, I've, I've always been an avid reader. Um, I always loved writing. And so that's what started me off on the journey to write The Tiny Warrior, which is my first book, um, yeah. and led me to the, to the other ones as well. So it's, it's, be, it's great to be able to encapsulate your thoughts and what you want to contribute and share into a written format because it ends up in places that you could never be. Um, so it's kind of like a, a mini version of cloning yourself, you know, in a way. Interesting. So I, I love that aspect because I've gotten letters, you know, from people that, you know, like for, for instance, one of, one of the best letters I ever got when the tiny warrior came out was from a soldier, a Marine uh, that was in Baghdad. And he wrote on the back of an MRE 
box. You know how they have the postcards that you can send yeah. home. And he wrote yeah. to me and he said, somebody stuck your book into my rucksack before I deployed and I read it. <laughs> and, you know, he had the, these really nice things to say about it. But, uh, but the thing that really left an impact was what he wanted to do when he got home for his tribal community. And that was one of the best, you know, like who'd ever oh, thunk yeah. it, you know? Being, so able that's why inspire, I like being able to inspire somebody from half a world away is pretty cool. Yeah. And, it, yeah. and there's always pressure to get it right. There's a, you know, writing is a, is a discipline more than, more than inspiration on any day. I mean, that 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration is spot on accurate, but I get through it and I, and I push and work because I know that the end product is going to possibly impact somebody else's life in a positive way. And my gosh, if we're not here to do that, why are we here at all? What about internally? Is it, is it cathartic for you to write? Is it, um, do you think it's important to write even if you're not going to publish? I do. I, that's a great question, by the way. Holy cow. Let's take, let's take a moment and process that one. <laughs> wow, Tanner. You know, I was just thinking think about a moment. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, in the way you were talking about it, it seemed, it seemed like to me, it's very cathartic for you. And, and, you know, for those veterans that, you know, I always think about, you know, the way you were saying that, like, should we be writing even if we're not publishing? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I think journaling is one of the most powerful exercises that we can do as human beings to get out of our own head, to understand our own process, our own history, um, our own journey, where we're going, how we're going to get there, untying our own knots, our own struggles. I mean, when you put it down on paper, it can be messy and ugly and crazy. And you look back on it later and you're like, wow, you know, that was, you know, you almost are teaching yourself. It's, it's a really powerful exercise. And yeah, if you never have plans to publish, I'd still am a, you know, really highly recommend journaling. You know, you don't have to be an eloquent writer. You don't have to be a good writer at all. You know, just to be able to put your thoughts out on paper is, is this great mind dump. Um, and it is cathartic, especially with my second book. That was definitely a cathartic book because it was a novel. Mm. Uh, called Spirit on the Run. And it actually, it wasn't an autobiography, but it had an element of trauma that my family went through losing a child. Mm. And in that book, um, and that book took a long time to write because every time I started writing it again, it felt like layers were being, you know, pulled back and, and that wound was there. But it was one of the best experiences I could have had to write that book and be able to share it with the world um, because it was part of my healing process. Gotcha. So again, yeah, it's, 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 it's sounds like it was more internal than external, uh, on, on that book. Very good. But the Very feedback I've gotten from people who've also gone through not just those kind of experiences, but different ones too, has been, you know, it, it reminds you that, yeah, that was, that was well worth the time and effort. Very good. Very good. Um, and, and my research, uh, you talk about within the past 25 years, you've shared time with over 500 native American tribes, Spent tribe, spent time with elders of each tribe. What has been the common thread between all of them? Uh, there, there are so many, and one one of them I think is just an idea that we we move so fast in our society that mm -hmm. sometimes we're missing out on the stuff that we're desperately desperately trying to find. That's one of the things I get from our elders every time I interact with one is, you know, life is precious. It's beautiful. 
And it's found, you know, the most powerful moments are found in those moments of quiet reflection. You know, our elders always taught us the outdoors were our greatest classroom. You know, the, the nature would teach us about everything we needed to be a happy, healthy human being. And they still teach that uh, for good reason. We need it now more than ever. You know, to have those moments of quiet where we're away from technology, away from, you know, the office or, or being indoors even and and going back and kind of rebooting and reconnecting to something much, much bigger and, and deeper than ourselves. So I there, there's so much that I've gotten from our elders over the years. But, you know, that's one that I keep going back to over and over again that has helped me tremendously. Got you. Uh, it seems like you haven't. um you kind of encapsulate all of these and I haven't watched the whole thing, but you put it in a PBS show, mm-hmm. discovering your warrior spirit. Um, now I know getting a show on PBS is a lot of paperwork in the pitch process. Um, can you just bring people in on if they want to do a show with PBS? What is all involved there? Oh, uh, yeah, you, you nailed it. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Anytime I, I have the highest respect now, anytime I watch a TV show, yeah. Well, a lot of networks, it's it. like a handshake, but PBS is kind of a different beast. They are. There are a lot of layers, a lot of, a lot of, uh, details. Uh, yeah. Definitely. The way that, the way that that came about, um, I don't know the process of going from, you know, from the ground floor. Yeah. The way that I got that opportunity was because I was in a, a documentary from PBS called the warrior tradition. Mm. And what that documentary was about was how our tribes our our native American communities honor the warrior tradition, especially when it comes to military service. You know, we have the highest rates of military service per capita of yes. any ethnic group in America. And we have for a long time. Um, I'm a product of that as well. So I was in that documentary and I was, I mean, it was an incredibly fortunate experience because they tapped about 170, 80 people. They through the department of veterans affairs and, and the tribal liaisons and they, they wheedled it down to 120, then 75, 39 people ended up being interviewed on camera. Mm. And then 16 of us made it into the, into the film. And I was one of them. And so I am very lucky in that regard. And then on the, when that was over, the director pulled me aside and he said, you know, we would like to uh, talk to you about possibly doing a pledge program, national pledge program. And I was like, wow. I was like, really? And, you know, this is like what Wayne Dyer did and Deepak Chopra and Susie Orman. Okay. Um, I think Tony Robbins did one years ago. And he, and he said, uh, and I go, well, okay, well, with who? You know, like I was going to be part of a group again. He said, with you. <laughs> and I thought he was joking. I mean, I laughed. Like, I was like, yeah, right, right. So a year and a half later, that's when the show actually came out. But it was a year and a half of, ex- I mean, so much work. We did 24 script revisions for each of the three sections of scripting. I mean, it was just unbelievably, you know, it was a lot of work, a lot of work, but, um, the way that, you know, that comes up is, you know, yes, you have to have a good premise. You have to have, uh, a strong enough message, but you also need to make sure that you understand who you're marketing to or who the message is going to. And that was one of the things that with PBS, it's not my typical, you know, audience. Um, so there were things that I had to change and kind of shape and shift and kind of, you know, sand the edges at times because uh, just the target market was a little bit different than what I'm used to. Um, no two weeks for me are ever the same. 
<laughs> so, uh, but when, when you're doing a PBS show, they're very specific on, you know, who they're, who they're marketing to. And you kind of have to, you know, kind of fit into that, uh, basket. Gotcha. So that was a challenge too at, at times, but I'm, I'm happy with how it turned out. Proud of the work that we did. It was a team yeah. effort truly. Um, but it was a wonderful experience. Very good. Very good. Uh, to you, cause you talked about it a lot in that show or talked about it in the trailer that I saw and a couple other things I've seen uh, to you. What is warrior spirit? If you're going to put a sm- quick box on it real quick. Warrior spirit is that deep internal drive that despite the hardships, despite challenges will rise up and allow us to keep moving forward. Even when we're broken, even when we're scared to death, because we understand that we are put here to serve. Yeah. You know, that warrior spirit, especially when we talk about warriors in our tribal communities, yeah. they weren't what we see in Hollywood movies. You know, that, that warrior image, it's a lot more in alignment with what we see in the military which is why there's such a good alignment there. It's somebody who is a contributor, somebody who is a servant. Um, what do you see and, as, the, as the difference from today's culture and TV and in books to what you're talking about? Um, that when we talk about our traditional warriors, it was yeah. all about service. It wasn't about glory. It wasn't about what we could get. It was about what we could do for somebody else. It was somebody who fought for something bigger than their own personal welfare. Um, somebody unless who, unless you're Achilles, that's a historical warrior. Yeah. 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 Totally out for himself, but I, I again, <laughs> Greek warrior, a little yeah. bit, a little bit different, a little bit. That was about glory. You know, that but was, like I said, when we look at our, our tribal communities, this yeah. was, these people were servants, you know, to their core, you know, whether you talk about Pontiac or sitting bull or Wilma Mankiller or, or crazy horse. I mean, th- these were people who put their lives literally on the line to contribute and they cared much more about their people than they did about their own personal welfare. And that's the way they lived and that's the way they died. And um, it's constantly inspiring to me because it's an evergreen model that I think is more needed today than it ever has been. Is somebody who's willing to get out of their own way and it's not about pride or ego or look at me, look what I can do. But it's more about here's how I contribute. This is who I take care of. This is who I defend, who I protect. And it's somebody who's humble too. You know, that's a big part of our, you know, that's one of our traditional tribal values from every tribe that I've worked with is humility. So warriors weren't arrogant and bold and mouthy. It was, it was somebody who, who quietly served, did what they needed to do and did it for a lifetime. Growing up in the Pacific Northwest, when you were talking about the, the attributes of a, of a warrior, I immediately went to chief Joseph. I immediately yes. went to chief Seattle, you know, those yes. two speeches that those two gave, uh, you, all those attributes that you're talking about. It's exactly what they, they were. Phenomenal examples of leadership and, and the warrior spirit in action. Chief Joseph is one of those. I highly recommend people read about his life and the journey of the Nez Perce people. Yes. Um, I've worked with that tribe many times. I've got great friends up there, but their history, you know, Chief Joseph was a reluctant leader mm-hmm. and, and he fought. I mean, they got within 40 miles of the Canadian border and they had all their, all their women, children, old people, with them as they were having a running defensive battle through hundreds of miles through some very harsh country, um, fighting the U S army and, and they just wanted to get away. And, but, but when you watch or when you listen to the story, I mean, this is somebody who, again, he was, he was humble. He was, um, 
he was a contributor. He was somebody who did what he needed to do under the worst of circumstances. Yeah. And, and you, and you listen, you read that speech that he gave and you think about the, the time that he had to give that speech 40 miles away from the border, uh, yeah. American army. And I'm sure there were men in his tribe that still wanted to fight and Always. The, pow- the power of what he was able to, to broker at that moment, I don't think it's been studied enough in American psychology or, or philosophy. It's just incredible what he was able to do in that moment. It was, you know, this is, this is an interesting point, Tanner. Um, it, it broke his heart. I mean, you could tell even in the words that were recorded, he was heartbroken in that moment. Of course, there were always, there were always warriors that wanted to keep going. There were other warriors who said, this is, this is it. And the reason this is a, this is an important point is because our warriors never quit. They did surrender, but they didn't quit. And there's a difference between the two. Surrender is where we stop doing a thing because we know that the continued actions aren't going to produce any more positive result and actually could cause more harm. Yeah. That's where we surrender, you know, whether it's in our own personal lives or we're doing bad habits or practices where we just say, look, I need help. This isn't working. It's not about quitting, you know, or being weak. That's ultimate strength because somebody like crazy horse, for instance, to surrender or Geronimo to surrender, they yeah. never quit, but they did surrender. And it was for the good of their people. It wasn't about their pride or ego as an individual, they would have kept going. Um, but that's not their, that was, they had a much bigger responsibility than that. Yeah. So, yeah, I know when you, when you were talking about those attributes, I was looking, I was thinking of exactly what it's Joseph. I went to, cause chief, and then a lesser known chief Seattle kind of gave a similar, uh, thing, speech talk, uh, same as she did, but it's not as well known and, and not many people yeah. know, but no, uh, definitely good points. How can veterans reclaim that warrior spirit that you're talking about? Cause you see a lot of it during the transition time. Yeah. That spirit is lost. I, I think we need to really clarify um, what that warrior role is all about. I, I think even in our tribal communities, we over romanticize the warrior role until it becomes this bright, shiny thing on top of a mountain that's unattainable. And I know a lot of our military veterans fall into this trap too. And it is a trap because it means that when we're a warrior, we don't need help. We don't need to say, I, you know, I need something from somebody else, or I'm struggling, or I'm broken, or I'm hurting, you know, and, and the thing is we discount the warrior role when we see it that way as this perfection, you know, this idea of perfection, it's not our warriors dealt with fear. They dealt with pain. They struggled. They made mistakes. They fell down. They cried to the heavens, but what they did not do was quit. Um, our warriors needed outside resources. They needed encouragement. They needed to take care of their minds, their bodies, their spirits. And they did. So it's not about being this, you know, I always tell people in in the programs I do and in my writings, our warriors were not bulletproof. You know, that is a misnomer that gets us into hot water quicker than anything else is when we tell ourselves what my buddy, Dr. Kevin basic, who's a classmate of mine in his programs, he says, the big lie we tell ourselves when we struggle is I'm alone in this and we're not, mm. you know, we all struggle. We all, we're human beings, you know, and we can be warriors and still get help. We can be warriors and still struggle, you know, but being a warrior means that we are rising up over and over and over again to keep moving forward one step at a time. 
forgetting to rely on the tribe that you're trying to serve. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what that, that was. The, there's a great point there because we're actually disconnecting from our tribe. when we think being a warrior means that we're doing it by ourselves. We're disconnecting the whole purpose of being a warrior when we don't access our tribe. I think in, in, I think the, the concept of, of tribe is a very powerful thing. You know, small mm-hmm. town communities are tribes. I always look at my hometown as a tribe. Um, however, my wife, much like yourself, uh, they were very transient. Military community was a tribe. Um, she never experienced that small town life growing up K through 12 with the same people. Mm-hmm. Um, society in, in general is getting more transient nowadays. I, th- I think looking at the costs and benefits, benefits maybe being, you know, personally you're experiencing more, you're open to more things, economy, co- you know, costs are lower and all that. But do you think there is a cost to the tribe in all of this? Um, loss in, in some of the obvious tribes, like the small town communities. Um, if you don't know, like, do you, maybe, you know, you don't know who to serve. Maybe you don't know what the tribe is. And, and maybe the, at the, with, with that, one can lose their purpose. You think that might be? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, I think, you know, I, two answers to that. Number one, we create our own tribe. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, we can be born into one. I, I have a tribe, you know, but my tribe is not just my tribe itself. It's, it's, you know, my family, it's my friends, my, you know, people I've served with, you know, I've built my own tribe consciously, you know, and purposefully over the years, because I know how valuable and precious that is to me to stay strong on my path. Um, but at the same time, who we contribute to, this is a big part of the human experience to be engaged in serving a group, serving someone. And I am so grateful, you know, for a lot of years, I've known my tribe, you know, who I contribute to. I work with service providers, you know, in Indian country and outside, you know, the people who have dedicated their lives to serving others, that's my tribe. And that's who I serve. My purpose is to help them do what they do even better, do it more sustainably and do it at a higher level uh, and, and enjoy it more too. And so when we have a tribe to serve, we're engaged at a deeper level. And if you don't have a tribe that you're serving, that's, that's one of the biggest blanks, I think, uh, to fill in. It's worth every bit of time and effort you put into it. Because when we have that, we're in alignment with something greater than ourselves. And I think a lot of veterans are, are, are looking for that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're built to serve. They've, they've served before. They know, they know what it's like to be in a tribe. And I think, yes. you know, a lot of times when you get out, you, you have that loss of tribe. And you haven't built one yet. And it can be a very, very confusing time. But I think what you're saying is from what I'm gathering, let me know if I'm wrong. As as civilization is becoming more connected, more expansive, it's ever more incumbent on you to find that tribe and to build that tribe and cultivate that tribe to serve. Yes. And do it purposefully because and and start small. You know, I, I like what you said, because that's the thing is when we're in the military, our tribe is default. We're, we're there in it every day. We're wearing the same uniform. We have the same culture. And, it, and, it, and a lot of people, when we look back at our military experiences, those are some of the best days of our lives because of that camaraderie and that connection, right? And then when we get out, it's like we're on our own and we're scrambling to fill that, you know, fill that void. For me, luckily, my, you know, the filling kind of hit a crossroads. I was already in transition. Yeah. But if you start off at, you know, speaking at, uh, you know, doing volunteer work, speaking at a local school, a YMCA, you know, start small and, and grow from there. 
but it's really important to be able to have that. I mean, like I said, services are highest calling and especially people who are in uniform understand that and they know when it's absent, but it's up to us to find that next group that we want to be part of and be a contributor to. And I think to, to what you were talking about, I think it's important to, to not think back and so say those are the best. And I've, always, I've said this in a couple of interviews. It's not important. It's important to say that is not the best time of my life. Your best time is in the future. You got it. You got it. Always. You got to yeah. pick it up. Look for the, look for the next adventure. You know, um, you don't get into that high school quarterback mentality, you know, right. um, you know, it's because it, that can get dark and depressing really quick. You got to pick it up, find the, find the next adventure on your next yeah. try. Very good. Yeah. Savor, savor the memories. You know, I have a lot of great ones, Yeah, but, I'm, but yeah, always the, the best times are yet to come. You know, we 100%. work on those. We take it, we get there one step at a time. So yeah, I agree with you on that. hundred percent. Um, now I've also heard you say and talk to that. Um, we never have enough, but mm-hmm. we look around in a tribal sense. We always have what we need. Uh, again, veter- veterans are very much a tribe. If we look around and, and like you said, if we're creative about it, yeah. What needs are fulfilled in that tribe, in that veteran tribe? What's in what's in that proverbial backyard that can lead us to success? Oh my gosh, it, tons that we overlook. I mean, as far as far as you know, in a in a in that type of environment, you know, all of our experiences, our stories, our networks. I mean, to be able to collaborate more than we do. Like, I have a great network, and I rely on them, and I'm happy to know that they rely on me as well. You know, it's a give and take, it's mutual support. But I mean, we tend to discount, like I said earlier, we tend to discount all the great stuff that we bring to the table that make us uniquely and powerfully us. You know, all of our history, our training, our education, our life lessons, our our experiences on the journey um, are incredible assets. You know, all the tribes that I've worked with in, in 25 plus years, every tribe I've worked with used what was in their own backyard to create success, literally. I mean, the, the Inuit people in Alaska use seal skin for their shelters and clothing that is as warm as cloth, four times its thickness, and it's waterproof like Gore-Tex. What a great resource. You know, the, the Pueblo people in New Mexico used mud in their own backyard to make adobe, make these beautifully engineered multi-level apartment complexes. Um, my people use birch bark for canoes, containers, shelters. We also tap the trees in our backyard maple trees in particular, and made that wonderful concoction called maple syrup. Um, (laughs) You're welcome, by the way, that's from us. (laughs) But the point I'm trying to make is, I mean, even something as simple as this, you you start off with a rock and you shape it and you chip it and you turn it into something useful, something that can defend your village or get you dinner. And it starts off. For those that are listening, he's just just put up an arrowhead. Arrowhead. (laughs) You know, the classic arrowhead, uh, which starts off as just a simple stone. So using the resources that we have in our backyard, like I said, start my business with a Kinko's, you know, a business card and a sky pager. You start with where you are, but the, a big part of leveraging our resources is being aware of what's around us, you know, tapping into that person, that thing, that course, that book, that video, you know, we live in the information age. I mean, yeah. it's everywhere now. It's a, you know, it's an embarrassment of riches when it comes YouTube to YouTube is a beautiful thing. It is, but it doesn't do us any good if we don't access it. That's the point I'm trying to make. It's everywhere around us, but if we don't reach out and ask or, or seize it, it doesn't do us or anybody else any good. You're very good. And I think specifically in the veteran community, there are now so many resources. 
for veterans to tap into between veteran service organizations, nonprofits, the VA, they're, they're all a resource. I think it's important that you should really look around in that community because it's a super supportive tribe. You know, if you really get into it, you know, it is. Uh, and I'd ask the veterans too to look at their own, you know, resource set too. That's the thing we're looking outside of ourselves sometimes, but mm. you know, veterans, when, when they're going out and looking for opportunities, what I humbly ask you to do is don't discount your stuff, your good stuff, all the things that make you uniquely and powerfully who you are. You've intangibles. all of that. Yes. The, yeah. the, the discipline, the hard things you've been through, the leadership experiences, how you learn to improve your communications, the, you know, especially the things that we messed up on where we, where we fell down and stumbled or struggled. Sometimes those are the best things that we can bring to the table. Uh, it, it leaves a mark behind, but sometimes scar tissue is tougher than the tissue that it replaced. Oh, 100%. So don't forget that. 100%. Um, again, I, I was listening to one of your talks and, and I heard something stuck out to me. I heard when you said when you drift away from the basics, that's when we struggle as human beings. I yeah. think you're kind of talking to some of those basics right now uh, that, that veterans sometimes drift away from during that transition period in their life. And it's sometimes what makes transition so hard. Yeah. Go back to the fundamentals, go back to what got you there. You know, there are basic things that we can do on a daily basis. There is cause and effect. When we take action, we get a result. When we take care of ourselves. We perform better. Uh, what's it? What's the saying? We all know slow or smooth. Slow is steady. So, slow is smooth. How, how smooth is fast? <laughs> yeah, we don't even know the quote. We know what we're talking about, though. We know we, what we're talking about. Slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Exactly. Yeah. Slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Um, don't try to do too much in a day. Do today's work today. Do tomorrow's work tomorrow. Um, tap your network, your resource list. We were in the military. That was our bread and butter. You know, we don't do it alone. Teamwork is everything. Yeah. Don't forget that. Yeah, we got to go back to the fundamentals during times of disruption and change. Uh, the fundamentals are still fundamental. The basics haven't changed. Yep. You know, it's like I said, when we drift away from those things that we start to make life harder than it needs to be. Oh, hundred percent. Good stuff. Um, DJ, what's one thing that you learned if you were to pick one thing, one thing that you learned in your, during your time in the military to, that applies to what you do today? Whew. The biggest thing, I guess I would say. Cause it sounds like you're very in tune with what you did learn in service. And I think that's so important. Yeah, definitely. Um, but, but one thing, oh, you're killing me with the one thing. I know. I was like, I can give you seven, but the, but the, but the one thing. But um, I think, I think what you said just there yeah, is so important that a lot of veterans don't realize it's, it's, there were many things, you know? Yeah, there are. I mean, it's, it's and, a laundry and, and list. I, that's like a Santa Claus, you I, know, Christmas <laughs> list. You know, it's like, you just keep unrolling the scroll, but we discount that stuff. I think but for you, know, I, th yeah. I almost want to put one in, in love. I just almost want to dig in there and, and put one in there for you is from, from what the way you're talking about everything that you learned, I think the appreciation for what you learned is, is one of the biggest things that you were able to pull. Thank you for filling in the blank for me on that. You helped me. You saved me. You asked me a hard question, then you answered it. Thank you. Thank you, Tanner. Is it right? I mean, uh, am I absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and the, the longer I go, the deeper that appreciation grows. Mm. I mean, like I said, there, there are so many things that I got out of it that seem 
you know, like common sense, but it's not common in the world. It's, it's what we, what we learned while we're in uniform that translates directly and beautifully, by the way, into what we do outside of the military. Uh, but we tend to forget that linkage, you know, and then, and then we start looking over our shoulder, like you were saying is those are the best days. No, bring the good stuff forward into this moment. And, and, and as you move forward in your journey, the good stuff is still the good stuff. It's still usable. It's still accessible and it still works. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, has there been a veteran in the community whom you've worked, whom that, you know, or, or a veteran nonprofit in the community uh, whom you've had an experience with that you'd like to mention? Oh my gosh. There's another one of those. Uh, <laughs> you had a big one. <laughs> yeah. A, a veteran friend of mine, Danny Garceau, he's a, he's Ojibwe from up in Michigan. Um, great guy. He was in the army for a couple decades. Um, but he's one of those guys that is just, he walks his talk in every way. And he was just in a motorcycle accident a couple of weeks ago, ended up breaking his collarbone. I mean, he's a, he's a tough guy, but he has these, this near death experience and the way that he posted was so underwhelming and so low key. And it's like, Oh my gosh, you know, but that's, that's his nature, you know, is calm, cool, collected, uh, again, slow is smooth, smooth is fast uh, type of mentality that I've always been drawn to because he's just he's this big guy. He's strong as an ox, but he's got the, he's got a heart of gold and a, a warrior spirit through and through. And he exudes that in the people he interacts with and talks to. And um, I've always you know looked up to him as a mentor and a, and a good friend. But I, I mean, there are so many veterans I interact with and, and have through through decades of my life. Yeah. that I'm so grateful for. It's hard to narrow it down to just, you know, to a few or one, but um, that's one that came up into my mind, you know, there you really go. quickly. There you go. Very good. Um, DJ, is there, is there anything that I haven't asked or that I've missed um, that you think is important to share? Or maybe is there a parting shot to, to any veteran that might be listening to this or, or VA employee? I would, I would go, I would go back. Yeah, I, I, there is, I would, I would circle back on the, the idea that I said before, our warriors weren't bulletproof, bulletproof. We discount, we diminish the warrior role when we think it was somebody who was beyond help, somebody who didn't need outside support, somebody who didn't face fear or pain. We discount that role when we think about it that way. Um, I'm going to say something that's kind of Dr. Susian, but I'm going to say it anyway, because it's, okay. it's true. You are the only you you will ever have or be. Act accordingly. You've got to take care of yourself uh, first and best. And when you do that, then you can truly fulfill that warrior role. You can't be a warrior if you're falling apart. I know the pressure is there to perform, to contribute, but you've got to take care of the source of that service and that contribution, which is you. So our warriors always did it. They took good care of their minds, their bodies, their spirits. Uh, they didn't neglect themselves. They got spiritual help. They got advice from elders when they needed it. They took care of their bodies. They made sure they were well fed. They were well rested because they knew that they wanted to contribute fully. You can't do that on a half charged battery. So take care of yourself. I, I know life can get hard. We all struggle. We all make mistakes. We all fall down. We all need help at times. Um, don't put yourself in that perfection category of that over romanticized warrior role, you know, be the real warrior, 
the one who needs help, just like all of us do. DJ, I want to take you to, to back home to Washington State to the Olympic National Rainforest and just sit by a fire with you for a bit, drink some beer yeah. and, and talk more, man. It's been great. Uh, I appreciate but we, it. Yeah, no worries. Uh, but do, but, but, but definitely thank you for the time that you did give us. You're on board of the battle and uh, we are out. Have a good one. Thank you, Tanner. I was a gunner's mate. Tonkin Golf. Logistics. Ramstein. Medic. Kandahar. As a veteran, it doesn't matter when or where you served. Infantry, Camp Pendleton. Or what you did. The VA has benefits that may be useful to you right now. See what VA can do for you. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov. I want to thank DJ for coming on and sharing his journey and his story. For more information about DJ, you can find it at nativediscovery.com forward slash about. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is from our VA Veteran of the Day program. Every day, our digital media team honors a veteran on all of our social media platforms and with a blog on blogs.va.gov. You can nominate the veteran in your life by sending in a short write-up and about five photos to new media at va.gov. After graduating high school in Port Treverton, Pennsylvania in 1962, Dennis Wolf enlisted in the Army. After graduating basic, Wolf entered the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Field, where he received assignments included supporting Secret Service with presidential protection. Later, while working as an EOD instructor at Redstone Arsenal, Alabama, Wolf went to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, to participate in the 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta selection process and was selected to join Delta Force. In 1980, Wolf served as a team leader during Operation Eagle Claw, which was a mission to rescue hostages held in Iran. For the operation, Wolf worked with breaching charges and disarming booby traps. Another notable assignment includes working with the Italian Counterterrorism Force in 1981 to help return U.S. Brigadier General James Dozier, who was kidnapped by the Red Brigades, a militant communist group. He also served as a team leader in Operation Urgent Fury, which was the invasion of Grenada. After 25 years in the Army, Wolf retired in 1987. However, his work in EOD did not end as he continued his work as a civil servant with the Joint Special Operations Command. Here, Wolf was pivotal in integrating important EOD tactics and principles into special operations, which increased the capability of countering threats. Recently, Wolf retired from JSOC after 23 years of civil service. And after his 50-year career in the EOD and special operations fields, Wolf was awarded with the 2018 Bull Simons Award, a Special Operations Lifetime Achievement Award. Army veteran Dennis Wolf, thank you for your service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a future Born the Battle Veteran of the Week so we can all learn their story, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, 
No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entity that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you're hearing now is called Machine Gunner, which is courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song, and was written by Marine veteran Mark Milkilhenny, Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, and Michael Duncan. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. We'll see you right here next week. Take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine gunner. bullets fly to my brain. Simplify till we're done of a campaign. My desk is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a 7.62 round that'll cut them down in an instant. Made bullet in my back Raining down lead Punching that clock Get them boys, I'm laying down Cover machine gunner Bullets fly day and night rain Simplify do or die Another campaign Here we go, lock and load 0331, lug a thousand rounds And I ain't bringing back one There I was at the U.S. Air Force Academy, I was 19 years old. It was the summer between my freshman and sophomore year, and I had signed up to go to Free Fall Parachute School. I'd wanted to do it since I was eight years old when I saw the movie The Dirty Dozen, and I did it with two of my best friends. It was a, a garbage bag was involved in duct tape, and my friend almost <laughs> broke himself in half. But it didn't work out. We had the vision, no training, not, not the right equipment. Flash forward, here I am doing it for real. It was a phenomenal experience. I loaded up on my, my jump group. Uh, everybody's excited. You know, we get up to altitude. You know, if you've ever been in a playoff game, everybody's high five and talking trash, you know, like everybody's pumped. <laughs> we get up to jump altitude about 5,000 feet above the ground. They open the door. There was no trash talking. There was no high fiving. It was a bunch of terrified people looking at each other. Yeah, yeah, it's go time. And my first jump out of the door, I, I went second. And um, I should have gone first because uh, the guy I was living with at the time, Charlie, uh, he went out the door first. And it was just, it was uh, like watching a horror movie unfold. Like the guy slapped his rear and said, go, saw a flash of his helmet, bottom of his combat boots and out the door he went. And he screamed as he went, by the way, I want to add that. <laughs> and then, yeah. And now I'm up next and I Great. go towards the yeah. door. Next. Yeah. yeah. Next. <laughs> My legs are going like jackhammers. And I stand at the edge of the door and I look where they tell us to look, which is down. Don't look down. I did. was wholly terrified. You know, I stepped back from the door. I couldn't do it. I'd like, I'd trained for two weeks for this. I wanted to do it for 10 years. And I remember looking at the rest of the airplane. They're all looking at me. And one guy in the back, I, I don't remember who it was, but he, I remember he puts his hand up. He goes, don't be chicken. We're going right after you. You know, and it's like, up. yeah. So it gave me a little bit of courage. Guy, you know, hit me, said, go I, out the door. I went and I'm enjoying, you know, I, I tumbled through the sky and it was this crazy experience that, you know, coming, coming to reality. And I finally said, you know, remember the training, remember the training. So I arched my back as hard as I could. And it took about a half a second to, to regulate. It was like, and I'm in a stable free fall position. I'm like, wow, that really worked. Hmm. And so reached over, pulled my chute, opened up. 
thankfully, you know, I could feel it coming out of my back and it caught and that opening shock was tremendous. Um, you know, you go from 120 miles an hour to 15 in about a second and a half. Mm. And now I'm enjoying the ride and I look over and I, you know, Charlie's parachute is about the size of a quarter and I hear screaming. I look down, he's floating over one road, two roads, over some trees into a riverbed. And I hear him go, no, <laughs> I see a big dust cloud. <laughs> and now I'm coming down behind him and I don't quite make it to the riverbed. And I ended up hitting a tree. And it was, uh, it was one of those experiences, like when you're jumping a bike, when you're a kid and you're jumping ramps and the one time you jump and you miss a seat, that's exactly what it was like. It was a, it was a terrible experience. I cracked the top of the tree. It was only, it was a sapling okay. fell to the other side, landed in a cactus patch. I mean, you can't write this stuff. I mean, Jeez. I'm tangled in my strings like Pinocchio, got cactus needles all on my backside. The sergeants showed up and they're like, got tears in their eyes or laughing so hard. <laughs> And, um, <laughs> ended up jumping four more times. Uh, they all went better than that, by the way. And I got my, my free fall parachute wings, but, um, you know, you do a program like that. You know, we, we all have moments in the military where we get these surreal experiences of, of, a you know, a testing moment after that program, I felt like I could do anything, you know, I, I mean, and that's that confidence and empowerment that we get from going through something tough or hard or, or scary. And, um, so I, I look back at that time as one of those, you know, hilarious adventures that didn't turn out quite like I had envisioned in my mind. Uh, I didn't look cool. It wasn't nice. <laughs> it was a lot of sore, sore muscles and pulling needles out of my rear end for a couple of days, but it was a, it was a great time. <laughs> 